there are gaps here that we are able to absolutely fill. And so as a result, there are capabilities that NASA is going to be looking for going forward. And, and, I, and I think that really is kind of at the root of where NASA is going. And I think that's the reason why it's such an exciting time to be there and be here right now. You're listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey, brought to you by Very. In each episode, we have sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. T minus five, four, three, two, ignite rockets. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT Connected Devices of the Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very. And my name is Luke Wilhelm, Chief Product Officer of Very. And today we are very excited to be joined by Neil Mullick of the Office of the Chief Engineer for Space Communications and Navigation at NASA. Today we're going to be talking about the other side of impossible in space exploration and communication. Neil, thanks for being on the show. Yes, uh... Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Luke. It's uh, great to be here. And uh, I'm assuming you do that for all your guests with a, with a countdown, because if you did that for my benefit, it's not like I've heard that before. I was going to say, I, 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 how often do you walk in a room and your friends immediately begin a T-minus countdown? Um, it's almost more like a T-minus countdown for me to leave the room more than anything else. <laughs> and it's so- usually not starting at five, it's usually at one. I think uh, the audience has immediately probably picked up uh, on the British accent. We were joking in the pre-interview that America makes an allotment for uh, two people per year to come to the U.S. and and take a job that's, you know, I think traditionally thought of as a quintessential American job. So was it you and Piers Morgan the year that you came in? No, absolutely not. I, uh, I, I think I would just turn back around and go back to England if that was true. I'm telling you now. We have never derailed this quickly into an interview. Let's let's uh, let's see if we can't wrangle it back on the rails. So, Neil, in all seriousness, you've got an incredible background. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to be uh, in this position at NASA. And then I've got a ton of questions for you about some of the things you guys are up to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So, um, so you know, I I'm just like every other uh, kid that grew up. I mean, I dreamed of being an astronaut when they, when I was like you know up to the age of nine, and then I realized I was scared of heights. And then I, I abandoned that almost immediately. And then I actually became a car mechanic. Uh, and I actually had no intention of ever being an engineer of any kind whatsoever. And, and so as a result, my, my parents basically went and uh, found out that I actually had no desires of becoming any form of professional outside of being a car mechanic. And so as a result, they were like, nope, you're going to go to school. You're going to do something. And, you know, there's always the be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a, you know, what have you. And so uh, I, I was, uh, I took the engineering route. I started taking engineering classes. It all kind of made sense to me. And um, yeah, I, I got an electrical engineering degree, as fun as that sounds, out of the University of London. And then I uh, moved to the United States and I went over to uh, Stanford out there in Palo Alto. And I got my master's degree in electrical engineering. I always thought I was always going to work in the cell phone industry. As interesting as antennas sound, I, I was actually fascinated by that more than anything else. And I always thought, you know what, cell phone antennas would be a, a cool thing to get into. And uh, there was a recruitment fair and uh, there was a space company there that was looking to hire RF communications engineers. And so I, I joined Orbital Sciences over on the East Coast in Virginia. 
and uh, been in space since. Uh, I worked there for 10 years and I moved over to uh, NASA about six years ago. And so, yeah, that, that, that's my story in a nutshell. Amazing. And, and one of the things that we talked about in the pre-interview was, you know, kind of along this lines of establishing yourself in a place where you never thought you'd be, you know, let alone becoming a leader in. For companies out there interested in the aerospace, in, in space, you know, in getting into this, this world, what are some of the gaps that you see? And, and I'll say up front, I'm not asking you to make any commitments on behalf of NASA, but, you know, for folks out there that are very, that like you had this dream, you know, their company is looking and saying, kind of in this third space race um, or this, I don't know, third big wave of investment in this area. Can you talk about some of those gaps that you see and where a company might be able to get started getting into that area? We here at Barry fully understand that NASA is not endorsing any private companies, including Barry, and is in no way soliciting business. From the private <laughs> thank you, Luke. Thank Perfect. You. And thank you, Luke. Okay. Um, yeah, because otherwise I would not have provided a response, Ryan, and I would have said next. So, um, yeah. So, wait, you said third space race. Well, there was a there was, there was the second one already. You know, I, a space race is the wrong way to say it, but like. I, I come from what I would consider to be a NASA family. And like, this is a, I don't know, an area that has been close near, dear to my heart, same as yours. And I think of like, okay, the first space race that people think of, you know, got to beat the Russians. Let's get there. Kennedy said, let's do it. We got there by 68 or 69. And so we rode the, the Columbia program, sent some people to the moon, did some really cool things. I view this like second phase as like, beginning to send unmanned things and building telescopes that look, you know, looking very far afield. And I, I kind of see this third wave and I guess this is the world according to Ryan. So I, I should ask this person that we should start with that question. Do you view this as this, that, you know, this third big wave, but you know, now we're starting to really think serious. It seems to me, I should say, disclosure world, according to Ryan, that we're in this third wave where, hey, let's re-begin sending people and let's have real conversations about sending them farther. And, you know, now we're starting to, you know, SpaceX is saying, hey, we're going to, we're going to reuse rockets to bring the size of the investment way down. Jeff Bezos is saying, hey, not only are we going to send people, but I'm going to be one of the people, which seems like a, I don't know, a a major shift from previous. You, You definitely never saw like Gene Kranz saying, like, get me in there, guys, I'm going, you know, so now you've got people beginning to put their money where their mouth is. It feels to me distinctly different than the first two generations of space travel. Let's begin with that question. Am I characterizing this even close to correctly? Yeah, actually, I I think you are. I think, you know, yes, it was the first space race, right? The race to the moon. That was number one. Uh, We won. Yay. The second one, I think, um, that you characterized was, you know, all these big missions. I, I think there was never really any competition there. That was really just, you know, NASA kind of, you know, putting their elbows out, getting, you know, taking over and being able to go and develop these capabilities for, you know, magnificent science and being able to do all the the shuttle missions and being able to build the space station and all, all those things. And I wouldn't even consider that a race because it was really just kind of one player and that was really NASA. If you want to call it the third wave here, and, and that is really the, uh, you know, the, the ra- not necessarily a race back to the moon. It's going back to the moon and basically building on the future for, you know, g- going beyond. And I think that's what you're starting to see with NASA. Na- NASA is doing a lot of things now. If you, if you take a look at what they've been doing recently, 
And if you compare that back to the Apollo era, you know, back then everyone at NASA was really focused more on the, you know, let's get back to the moon. And they had some other small uh, projects as well relative to Apollo. Now, if you take a look at what we're trying to do, it's it's crazy. It's, you know, we have the space station program that we're still supporting. We have commercial cargo, commercial crew. We have a lot of science missions that we're still supporting. We have astrophysics, heliophysics. We have uh, we have our aeronautical division that are developing supersonic jets that have uh, you know, low contrails. And now we're trying to do deep space. And so what we're trying to see, and, and I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying, and that was... Yeah, now we're trying to find this new frontier. Where are the gaps going to be? Where where are the things that we know we should be looking at? And a lot of the things that we're trying to do is commercialize. You can see that with the success of commercial cargo, and you can see that with the successes of commercial crew. There are gaps here that we're able to absolutely fill. And so as a result, there are capabilities that NASA is going to be looking for going forward. And, and, I, and I think that really is kind of at the root of where NASA is going. And I think that's the reason why it's such an exciting time to be there or, and be here right now. Are there, are there areas that you think that are ripe for commercialization that maybe have not been there previously? You know, uh, so to, to date, you mentioned NASA being kind of the only player for a long time. And now you're seeing, you know, SpaceX and, and Blue Origin and some of these others. And it, but it feels like, you know, they're competing for NASA contracts. So the government, con- the government funded piece of this remains. Do you have a, a an opinion or thought on like at what point and what thing drives this being an ROI driven endeavor? Where, hey, this is th- there's a private sector need that's driving these things forward. Obviously, I know launching satellites and so forth has has been a big piece of that. Beyond that, any thoughts on areas where this, where the private sector uh, could begin to drive things more and more? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think if you go and take a look at the, the NASA model of how things get done. So NASA is looking to basically help industry. And I think that's where a lot of the private industries can kind of go and help make things the way things need to be done. Again, NASA doesn't have all the answers to everything. So, so, so this is the NASA approach. At a, at a you know if I had to distill it into a couple of points, first one is NASA knows that it has a it needs to have certain capabilities right we we talked about this with commercialization of taking crew to the space station so what do they do they go and provide some seed money to private industry to to develop a capability then that those companies go and come back to NASA and they sell NASA these capabilities and NASA is like perfect this is great. And so NASA then goes and provides money to go and say, yes, this is the service that I want. And they go ahead and buy those services from those companies. With those companies, you've now developed an industry. With that industry, you now have an ability for NASA to be able to go and buy a service as opposed to doing it themselves. And so crew transport is an example of that. You can see that with both companies that uh, have been awarded those contracts. And, and you can already start seeing that return on investment. Uh, we are now having regular uh, crew transport now, and we're going to be bringing on uh, the other provider shortly once they've completed their demonstration flight. And, and so as a result, I think I think we're, we're moving in that direction. And, and that's essentially the path that NASA is going to be going. To, to answer something that you, you asked earlier, is, is there other things that NASA is looking at in terms of overall gaps that we want to be able to fill. And the, and the other one is really directly in, in uh, the, the group that I'm in, in space communication and navigation. NASA is looking to uh, commercialize space communication, at least in the what we call near-Earth domain, which is basically anything from the, the geosynchronous belt 
downwards and being able to go and find out how do we go and have private industry use their innovations to be able to go and allow for space communications and navigations for all our low Earth orbiting spacecraft. And so, so, so that's a, a new interesting field. And again, this is where we're looking at private industry to be able to go and say, you know what, maybe we should think of it this way. Maybe we should think about handling things outside of the way NASA used to do things and using a new strategy and having NASA be able to go and leverage that and then help fund those activities and then developing a return on investment for those companies that can make this a promising industry going forward. I've kind of always thought about it like <clears throat> NASA is, is able to make bets that you have no idea if they're going to pay off or not. In like venture capital world or like actual financial banking world, you really want to have a pretty good success probability. And NASA puts out very hard challenges and then funds them and hopes that one out of 20 <laughs> actually see uh, real success in the field. It's kind of like DARPA is another agency that can push technology forward in that same kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think NASA is moving back into that innovative space. They want to be able to go and leverage the new things and the things that aren't necessarily tried and true. They want to be able to go and see how you go and do certain things uh, to make things more innovative so that way we're not relying on things that were designed and thought about 30, 40 years ago. So you mentioned communications. I, I wanted to ask you about a broad topic of like, let's call it connecting in hard to connect places. You know, we've had a number of guests on this show that have talked about that being one of the key challenges of the product that they've built, you know, whether they be in sub-Saharan Africa or, uh, you know, maybe they have an ag tech product that is, you know, needing to be able to connect in these remote agricultural areas. What are some of the technical challenges of, for like interconnectivity outside of Earth's orbit? I don't know what, there, I imagine there's like a half dozen things that maybe wouldn't even be obvious to someone who has spent their their whole life innovating, you know, here on on boring old Earth. Like, what what are some of the things that they should be thinking about that maybe aren't as obvious? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so obviously, I think you know, I think a lot of folks are aware, or if they're if they're not. So, NASA is really looking at deep space for exploration, right? Sending humans back to the moon and uh, going beyond and going to Mars. And so, one of the things that we currently have, at least on the NASA side, is the the deep space network. They they've been around for the longest time. They they supported uh, the Apollo mission, and and so we have these antennas located all over the Earth, three specific places where we're able to go and point at specific places in deep space and be able to communicate with spacecraft. And, and so one of the things that we're also trying to figure out is as we begin the, the long journey in terms of how we want to go ahead and explore, how do we go and make sure that we are able to go and connect in those hard-to-connect places? And so if we go and just, say, focus on the moon, uh, NASA is developing a, a, a system, a framework called LunarNet, and basically what it is, is essentially a, a framework of network of networks, basically where you can go and get multiple types of assets. It doesn't mean just one spacecraft. It could be a, a conglomeration of multiple assets where you can basically go and provide communications and navigations around the moon. Think about the infrastructure around the Earth and how we're able to go and connect almost everything around the Earth spacecraft-wise around the oceans. We, we have assets out there in space that are basically going and providing relay services. We want to be able to do that around the moon. 
And so LunaNet goes and answers that as well as providing those bidirectional communications. It provides navigation capabilities so we know exactly where spacecraft are and we provide a trunk back to the Earth. The great thing about this is it's almost like ubiquitous communications. It's like having your cell phone, right? Every time you look at your cell phone, everywhere you go, you always see four bars or five bars, depending on your network service provider, of course. Well, we want to be able to do that for our spacecraft, and we want to be able to do that for our astronauts and our lunar rovers and all the CubeSats that NASA sponsors from all these universities and high schools to be able to go and say, yeah, you can communicate. And so with that, you can cover the, the places around the moon, for example, that we wouldn't otherwise cover, the, the far side. We can cover the South Pole where we want to send crew. And then we want to be able to make it extensible enough to the point where we can take that framework and put it around Mars and be able to go and do the exact same thing. And so that's how you go when we solve the you know, hard to connect places. Now I've kind of generalized it because I said, that's how we solve it. And for the, for the listeners, I have put the inverted commas uh, with, the, with the fingers thing, because we still need to figure out how to solve it. And that's where industry can come in and go and tell us exactly how we think we should be doing it using innovative thoughts, as opposed to we've always done it this way and using the status quo. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking about that, first off, it's kind of funny to think of space as a hard-to-connect place, <clears throat> given how much we use space to connect <laughs> the Earth. And the second thing I was thinking of is when you were talking about the deep space network, that is still how we use to this day to connect to Voyager, <laughs> which is like as far out as it possibly gets for a spacecraft that humans have launched anyway, which I think is super cool. And the problem with the deep space network, as I'm sure you're aware, is bandwidth, because it's because there's only the three satellites and there's a ton of stuff that's out there that we want to talk to. So it sounds like this is also to try to get in front of that bandwidth problem as you put more and more aircraft, people, spacecraft, satellites, other things that want to start talking uh, just to make that ability as uh, prevalent as possible. Because otherwise, I'm pretty sure the high school students that sent up the microsat are not going to get any bandwidth, are not going to get any bandwidth relative to the other priorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and if I scale back the, the, the mumbo jumbo, I think it's really more you know, as you send spacecraft further out in space, the amount of data you can send back gets smaller and smaller. And right, that's that's just physics. You you can blame your physics teacher for telling you that because that's exactly the truth. You know, it, it's not necessarily a bandwidth issue on the DSN. I you know, I know that they have high data rate capabilities. It's really more just the the further out you go, the smaller that pipe becomes, just just out of general nature. And then when it comes to the number of missions we have to support. It, it, it's a lot. And, and the DSN is managing it really well today. They they have the capacity to go and support those. But as the number of missions increase and we start doing a lot more deep space elements, we're, we, we're going to need more assets to be able to go and be able to go and allow the DSN to focus on the missions like Voyager. Right. If you take a look at those those antennas, they're 70 meters in length. I mean, just it's it's amazingly large. And the fact that that thing can still talk to Voyager is it's still amazing and it's great. So, yeah, I mean, so, so there's absolutely opportunities here that, you know, people can leverage for sure. So like opportunities people can leverage, the most interesting opportunities often are like solving these problems that are thought of as impossible. The, you know, the one that we're all seeing play out right now in real time. And I think it makes for some of the most fascinating YouTube videos that, that, are, that you could possibly ever see is these reusable rockets, you know, I mean, they're bring, they're landing these things that just absolutely do not look like they lend themselves to, to landing in any kind of uh, organized fashion. And, and yet like, it appears that SpaceX has pulled this off. 
what are some things that you, or what a thing or things uh, that you think of as, you know, currently sitting on the wrong side of impossible. So, you know, I'm, for all of the science fiction fans out there, what you see a lot of times is like, they've traveled to this other galaxy. You know, you, you put them in this, this, uh, condition of stasis, you know, so we ship them out. They're 20 years old, 200 years later, they arrive. They're still 20 years old. You know, I'll, for the audience that can see, they cannot see Neil and is only listening to him. I, yeah, yeah, you may be able to hear him rolling his eyes. I'm not suggesting that stasis will be the actual thing, but can you talk about like, what are some things that currently sit on the wrong side of impossible that you think we may see solved in the next 10 or 15 years? Yeah. So, so, so before I answer that question, I, th- I think someone has been uh, either Netflixing or HBO Maxing uh, <laughs> passengers and or has been watching uh, the, what was it, Captain America, Winter Soldier, right? I really, want, you know, say, where, where they... I really wanted you to say love, death and robots, but it's okay. <laughs> See, I, I don't even know what that is. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I think one of the things <laughs> that... Uh, and by the way, I was eye rolling quite hard. So if anyone could actually hear that, <laughs> you, uh, seen it. you know, yeah, you're welcome. Um, I, th- I think, you know, th- there, there are a lot of things. I think ho- Hollywood is great when it comes to imagining the things that we, we don't usually uh, expect. You know, you, you use the landing rockets analogy. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that were really surprised that, you know, someone could actually go and land a rocket that was normally you know, something that you've just kind of re-entered the earth after completing its mission. So it's it's definitely possible. I think we've also uh, redefined the imaginable. And, and so as a result, you know, to kind of answer your question, what what's the thing that I can see that can't be done? Well, obviously the two items that you brought up, right, stasis and uh, being able to go and preserve uh, a certain age after, you know, 20, 30, you know, 400 years, whatever. I think for us, it's really more I would I'll put it into more of a realistic, not necessarily can't be done. It just hasn't been figured out. And that is, how do we get humans to Mars and be able to sustain it in the in the right possible way? For us to go to Mars, if you take a look at just the, the sheer distance and looking at how the orbits, and again, I, I apologize, I don't want to go in, into the, the technical flight dynamics aspects of all of this stuff, but the Mars orbit relative to the Earth changes quite drastically depending on when where it is. And so as a result, you know, Mars could be really close. And so as a result, you can have a, a shorter distance to getting to Mars, or it could be really, really long, and it could take years. And so the last thing you want to do is be able to go and have uh, a crew member go and launch and then, you know, celebrate four or five birthdays on this on a spacecraft in this small enclosed space, and be able to go and land and be able to go and do all the things that they need to do. And, and I think a great example is The Martian, if, if anyone watched that movie. And again, this isn't an, an endorsement for that movie specifically, but I think they really kind of captured a lot of the the challenges that we would otherwise see, right? Uh, if, if I narrow it down into the, the field that I'm focusing on now with communications, you can see, you know, one of the first few things that Mark Watney had to go and figure out was how do you communicate back with Earth? And you can see that there were time delays. We have to go and figure that out because we haven't figured that out. That's as of right now, we, we need to get it back to real time because that's what we all used to, right? Everyone in this world of Zoom and Teams and WebEx are used to this instant feedback. We don't get that with any of these missions in deep space. So how do we go and do that with a crew interaction? For example, if an astronaut goes and sees something, it's going to be hours, potentially, minutes, maybe, depending on where Mars is in that orbit, to be able to go and get a response out of mission control. 
So how do you change that? So, so those are some of the things that we haven't solved yet. In terms of things that can't be done, I would say it's going out further. How do we go to more distant places? As of right now, I don't think that can be done. Not unless we go and, you know, build our own little quantum thing, you know, where, you know, like in the Avengers, right? Where we can go straight into the in, into that specific thing. You get our own quantum tunnel and have Iron Man put something together. But I will tell you, actually, a, a funny aside, relatively funny aside, is um, NASA is also working on quantum communications. How do we go and move data really quickly and be able to go and move it on photons? Again, we'll save that for another podcast, maybe the uh, <laughs> the late night very podcast, perhaps. So um, that again, so NASA is doing a lot of cool cool things, and we're trying to go and do the things that no one's actually ever imagined. Two two thoughts: one, when you, when you got to the quantum wormhole, I was eye rolling really hard, just so everybody could hear that sound. <laughs> no, I was doing it because I could see you doing it, and so I thought, you know what. I'm not going to waste this opportunity. So I thought I we would. should definitely have a sound effect so that the audience knows when someone has made their uh, the other person eye roll. But Luke, please continue. The second th- thought I was having, I recognize that you're a uh, a communication guy. So it's two things. One was the only way I could see real time feedback to a crew that's on Mars actually happening is if essentially it's an artificial thing in orbit, like a Siri or whatever. That's that's reasonably able to respond to hard requests that they might have because otherwise distance is distance and light is light so there's not much you can do about that to some degree uh any thoughts on like feasibility of that yeah actually um so um and so luke this this is going to be kind of funny so i'm going to go and put you uh, put the spotlight on you so remember when i was talking about this lunar net idea and how extensible it was and it was like oh we can go and wrap this around mars that's essentially what we're trying to do so i think we're going to build a a, a Martian equivalent called MarsNet, which does the, essentially the same thing. You basically have the ability of being able to communicate close to real time with essentially the assets around Mars. The question is, how do you go and have the autonomy and fault responses and all that good stuff? And, and, and that, again, that, those are going to be some of the things that we need to figure out because, yeah, you're not going to be able to figure out the, the light speed item uh, back to work because it could just be very, very long. So that hopefully answers that question. And the second one is clearly it shows that you weren't listening to what I was saying earlier. <laughs> <laughs> all I could think about was how we were going to protect all these astronauts from radiation the whole time they were flying to Mars. <laughs> That's the number one uh, technical challenge that always comes to mind when I think of actually sending like living things that far into space outside of our nice protective mag- magnetosphere cocoon of Earth. Yes, Once you get out yes. there, it's pretty nasty. True. But, but to a calm guy, you know, yeah. Radiation, come on. Isn't all communications just radiation anyway? That's just one of the other things that just needs to be solved. Right, you know? right. <laughs> all right. Well, this is a perfect question for a calm guy at NASA. One of the things that's been dominating the news cycle right now is, you know, we're seeing a lot of seemingly very serious people in the Navy, uh, naval pilots, airplane pilots, say, you know, look, I personally have seen unexplained phenomenon. Um, I think the government has. Uh, uh, has transitioned from uh, the acronym UFO to UAP, I believe, unexplained aerial phenomenon. But you know, we're starting to see a shift away from this being more of uh, you know the tinfoil hat crowd and towards folks that most people would consider to be you know on the more serious end of the spectrum. But you know, we also saw Neil deGrasse Tyson on Bill Maher's show last week say. 
you know, hey, look, what do you really think is a higher probability explanation that the the navigation systems in these aircraft is glitching? Okay, so these are government acquired technologies. No offense against NASA, but uh, the government is not famous for always buying the best, best technical solutions. Again, no offense, NASA, we love you and appreciate all the hard work you've done. Uh, Do you think that is higher probability or do you think that aliens are visiting Earth and being captured on video? What can you tell us? Where is Neil and where is NASA at on this issue? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me uh, let me give you the 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 NASA response and then I'll give you the the world according to Neil Mollick. Uh, because if I said Neil deGrasse Tyson, then I would just point you to his uh, to his segment. But all right, so the 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 NASA line. So UAP, by the way, just so you know, Ryan, because you know I'm NASA, so I can tell you this. It's unidentified aerial phenomenon. So there you go. So that helps clarify. If anyone was wondering and was trying to Google it, uh, I was doing it as you were asking the question. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So uh, so here's the thing. Yeah. So that so there are these three unclassified videos out there. It's it's interesting. Uh, obviously, I think um, so, so. From the NASA standpoint, it's you know NASA has always been kind of looking for you know the search for life in the universe. So you know at this point, I can tell you NASA has not yet found any credible evidence of any extraterrestrial life. Um, but NASA is exploring the solar system and looking to answer those fundamental questions because I think that's always been part of the curiosity and why we want to explore. So again, you know, NASA is ready to go and support the rest of the government when it comes to the search for life and, and being able to go and help support any of those activities thereafter. So, so that's NASA. And, that, and, and again, you know, I agree with that. So the, the world according to Neil, and I actually second what the other Neil said. So you, you made a comment about the glitchy video. Yeah. So, so uh, and again, nothing against the, uh, the the Navy folks and our military brethren, but that's more of a Navy thing, not a NASA thing. Just a just a heads up. The other thing is for us, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of covered it quite nicely, and that is, you know, if if we really are seeing these UAPs, UFOs, why is it that they're only making themselves available when we're flying something else? You know, and why why are the videos always so so low death. I am. I'm pretty sure there are more capabilities that uh, our 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 military brethren have, and so it's always interesting that we're seeing that. And I think you know the other the other thing from my perspective is you know UFOs, right? What does that stand for? Unidentified. So you know, for example, if just because I go and take my coffee cup and I crunch it up and it doesn't look like a coffee cup anymore, and I throw it across the room. It won't look like a coffee cup, so it will be unidentified because you can't tell it's a coffee cup. It's flying, and it's also an object, so that would be a UFO, right? So in a way, it's almost like, okay, well, you know, if, if that's a UFO, then anything really is a UFO, and then we can start speculating. I, I honestly don't believe we are alone in the universe. That's just my personal opinion. I think, you know, that there's got to be smarter life forms out there. If not, well, that's an interesting podcast in itself. We, we just haven't found them, and I think these are just, you know, some data points. That's of interest, but I, I wouldn't, you know, think that. Hey, by the way, they're, they're coming and visiting us only right in front of our pilots. You know, that just seems a little far fetched to me. You would think that they would show up at more interesting uh, locations, like I don't know. You know, they could go and visit some monument somewhere here in the United States. They can go and see something fancy. You know, why, why would they just go and see us in space? They would come to, you know, see something nice. 
Yeah, Sean Carroll, the uh, cosmologist and gravitational theoretical physicist, does a podcast called Mindscape, and he was just talking literally about this. One of his people were asking about, you know, what are the odds, what proof would you need to see, that sort of thing. He's like, I think the probability of there being fuzzy objects on camera screens or instrumentation devices like radar or whatever, and them not being identified and people speculating about them is like near one. Like, certainly that happens. The odds that an intergalactic outside space technology could fly all the way to Earth and then try to hide from us, but not hide good enough that we sort of see him. He's like, I put that at almost zero. <laughs> so it would take some real convincing evidence to get him over the goal line. Sounds like you as well, and certainly I fall into the same camp. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, here's the thing. You, you would think that if they would come up on people's ring cameras, for example, like walking the streets at certain times of the night, you know? So, <laughs> you know, like I said, you know, <laughs> you could come so far, but... <laughs> He's, he's, he's like, he basically was like, yeah, I think they're either going to get here and like not be able to be seen at all or come down and say hello. I think the odds of there being a middle ground are pretty low. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what, it's almost like you're coming so far and then saying, you know what? Nah, that's all right. I'm just going to turn around and go back. Right. What, like, why would you do that? So, you know, well, I, have a, I have one serious question. I think a lot of people out there are maybe asking this to themselves. Devil's advocate, do you not think there's a case to be made? You know, so to Luke's point about like somewhere in the middle, not get caught or come say hello. You know, it seems like they're being captured in the places where no one else is except for, you know, airplanes that are in the middle of nowhere at high altitude, zipping along really fast. Um, do, you, do you not think that there's do you, do you think there's any realistic probability that they are being caught unawares? And saying, oh, dang, you know, and zipping out of there real quick. You, you, you feel like the probability of that is like at the ed edge of negligible. So it, it almost just doesn't seem to make sense. Then again, I'm, we're also trying to rationalize what it is that they're trying to do as well. Right. I, I think if they if they had that human curiosity, I think they would kind of go and try to engage at some point. But again, these are like alien forms. Right. These could be like little bugs. Right. You know, if you go and see one of those little cicadas come out you know out out at you right that that's what we think aliens are going to be right they're all over you they just want to engage but if you go and see like a little spider or you see like a, an animal of some kind and you try to reach for it they go and scuttle away maybe that's what aliens are maybe this is exactly how they interact maybe this is normal maybe it isn't maybe we're overthinking it and maybe someone went and caught i don't know like a deflated parachute flying somewhere and that moved and you know maybe oh there are glitchy things out there you know so, they could be they could be bad tourists you know so so you know visiting earth is one of the areas that you can visit you know you save up for holiday you get to visit a any planet in the galaxy you've always wanted to go to earth and see the, the blue dot you know and you come to earth and there's there's rules and you're supposed to go here at these times in these places. And, but you said, yeah, let's get a little bit closer. You know, this is like my, you know, my dad would, you know, when he goes to national parks, he's the guy that wants to step over the rope line and take a picture with the Buffalo. And I'm like, dad, those are the people that get gored by the bison, you know? And he's like, no, come on. And so, you know, the rules are for, don't worry about it. You know? So, so, so maybe we're, we're, we're looking at the, like the, the aliens that are the bad tourists. Yeah. I mean, I, I would almost use the analogy of, Think, think about someone coming from another country, right? Let, let's go and say England. Everyone in England loves to come to New York City, right? Everyone. Because, oh, my God, it's New York City. It's great. Well, that's almost the equivalent of saying, hey, I've just landed at JFK. Sweet. I'm in New York City, even though you're not really. And then turning around and saying, okay, I went and see New York City and I went back. 
right? You're not really seeing anything, right? So yeah, it definitely is bad tourist syndrome. If we wanted to go and create that acronym, I know that we love that here. So BTS. I saw Switzerland exactly like that, by the way. We landed at the airport, did a conference in the airport, and flew right back out and never left the airport. They, <laughs> and see, there you go. And you visited Switzerland. See? There you go. See? Yeah. Neil, I want to thank you for being on, on the show today, my friend. This has been a hoot. I enjoyed the pre. I enjoyed the interview. I hope the folks at home have enjoyed learning a little bit about space today. If people want to, to catch up with you after this, where, where can folks find you? Uh, I, I have a LinkedIn profile, so there you go. I'm, I'm already dating myself by just saying that alone. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Neil Mollick, M-A-L-L-I-K. I don't actually have a, a true digital profile. Uh, I'll give you the NASA one. So for us, it's nasa.gov, obviously. And for space communications, it's nasa.gov forward slash scan. That's uh, S-C-A-N. All right. So if you are looking, if you're looking to connect with Neil Mullick, it sounds like LinkedIn is the way to achieve it. Neil, thank you for so much for being on the show today, folks, uh, on the show today. That's it today, folks. My name is Ryan. And I'm Luke. Thanks for listening. And I'm Neil. Okay, this is Neil. <laughs> and we'll see you guys on the internet. <laughs> You shouldn't have to worry about IoT projects dragging on or unreliable vendors. You've got enough on your plate. The right team of engineers and project managers can change a pivotal moment for your business into your competitive edge. Very's close-knit crew of ambitious problem solvers, continuous improvers, and curious builders know how to turn your ideas into a reality, on time and up to your standards. With a focus on mitigating risk and maximizing opportunity, we'll help you build an IoT solution that you can hang your hat on. Let's bring your IoT idea to life. Learn more at verypossible.com. You've been listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. Have a question or an idea for a future episode? send it to podcast at verypossible.com. See you next time.